You're listening to Tripods Cast. Episode 7B The Cancellation. Welcome back to Tripods Cast, where this week we will continue our discussion of the television series Cancellation. This is the second part of a two part discussion. If you haven't already listened to part one, we recommend you go back and give that a listen before listening to this one. Otherwise, you'll be quite confused. To pick things back up, I would like us to have a listen to a bit more of Richard Bates talking about merchandising issues and releases on home media. Did you have and much involvement with the merchandising? The merchandising was a complete disaster. Um, I think we had one item. The problem was they couldn't find a way to build a cheap tripod. And so the merchandising, which I expected to be very big and, you know, yeah. would please the BBC, just never got off the ground. No. Yeah, because you even got a, a Radio Times cover. Yes, lovely Radio Times cover. There was a woman who who had worked on Blue Peter since sort of day one who specialised in making models of things out of everyday kitchen yeah. empty bottles and tins and straws and so on and so forth. And they gave her the job of building a tripod. Can we build a tripod? And she admitted defeat. She couldn't come up with anything. So I've probably got the only <clears throat> model tripod. Oh, oh. Here's wow. my baby. Is, is, is that a production model? No, it was one-off. Oh. I don't know why they made it. It was a one-off. And at the end of the series, special effects department gave it to me. Oh, so excellent. I still have it. It sits beside me. Just to remind me of the agony <laughs> I went through. It looks great, that model. It's good. It's a lovely model. And I think actually if the series had gone on, you could have made that as a sort of Christmas present model. It doesn't do anything. You just hang it from your tree. But it, it looks good. It looks good. Yeah. So it, it sits there glaring at me all day it's like with the uh the tie-in book covers they always manage to choose i don't know why but not exactly exciting images and they're even, not dynamic are they no and even now with the tripods dvd the thumbnails they choose for representing episodes it's just again not very interesting or exciting did you get a copy of the dvd richard it's here just to don't oh, remember oh that's a new oh i haven't seen that one. Oh, and they commissioned ken freeman to do a hypothetical soundtrack for series three that was good. Oh, did indeed. Oh, I'm going to see if I can find that. I haven't heard it. Oh, well, I'll, I'll get the new DVD as well. I talked to Fremantle Television a couple of years uh, because they had a new head of production there. I spoke to her because they've got distribution rights, obviously, and I said, how about making a 90-minute see if we can get something going with Disney or not going with Disney or whatever? Yeah. And I said, what I would do is I would get Jim to come back as head of the Freemen to plan the destruction of the tripods. So, and Jim would do that, I know. He'd love yeah. that, I think. There's a slight problem, though, Richard. In the third book, Henry sacrifices himself and gets blown up. Oh, well, that must be one of the changes I had in mind. <laughs> we, we, we'll throw Will into the city then instead. Anyway, <laughs> Fremantle weren't interested, so I think right. it's the end of the road. We, you're making a TV series in the 80s. You, you added 
or, or, or your writers did. A few more female characters, like the girls in the vineyard, or in the second series, you had girls active in the, the Freemen. And I just wondered if you'd even considered changing one of the lead characters, maybe make Henry a girl or Beanpole a girl. No, it never occurred to us, I must admit. No, didn't occur to us. Maybe we should, <laughs> okay. maybe we should have done. Maybe we oh, should have done. BBC's B magazine had a comic strip where they added a girl character joining them for a bit. Um, yeah, I've forgotten that. When John Christopher wrote the novels, the mindset of the time was girls will read stories about boys, but boys oh. won't read stories about girls. Oh, yeah, so, true. You see how that's changed. Yeah, I think, actually, I think it would have been, now you've asked the question, <laughs> I think it would have been a good idea. And I think perhaps we should have done. Even Beanpole could have been a, a twin and he had a girl twin sister. True. So, where were you when I needed you? Um, I, I, I was ten. <laughs> <You're> ten. <laughs> I don't. I've never liked the title. Actually, the tripods. I'm not sure we should have called it the tripods either. I, I could have called it the tripeds. <laughs> same, same difference. Same, same Latin yeah. word. No, I, I wasn't sure over the years whether we should have called it the tripods. Yeah. Anyway, too late to change it now. That was Richard Bates. Uh, Danny, looks like you've got something you want to say. Yeah, why didn't you ask him what he would have called tripods? <laughs> yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, you two were. Yeah. In the- I, I couldn't attend the interview. I was working. Yeah, that'd be interesting to know what Richard would have. <laughs> what thought you mean, a suitable alternative title would have been? Do you mean the tripods wasn't a serious suggestion? Do you think he was just meaning he'd call it by the books and just call it the White Mountains? Maybe, but I think. But then it, that wouldn't have worked, say, for series two and three potentially. Well, it so. would have. It would have needed an, an umbrella title so mm. people know it's the same series. Exactly. Yes. So maybe tripods, the White Mountains, or tripods. Well, I think he didn't. Gold. I think he didn't like the tripods. At I think he didn't like the name of the tripods. So that at all. wouldn't have been. I don't even think the books had those overall titles. No, they, no, they, no, they, they didn't. didn't. They did. The was just. It's like ones. it's like the Hunger Games, though. When did they start becoming called the Tripods Trilogy? Then that's probably the I'll probably say from the TV series. TV series, maybe. I think we'll have to investigate. That. We we will. Yeah, it's like the Hunger Games. They kept the Hunger Games as an umbrella title for all the films, didn't they? Mm. With the second and third books as a subtitle, because if it all three had separate titles, that wouldn't have had a connection to the audience. They wouldn't have known they're watching. Conver- did Divergent do that as well? No, no and neither did changed, Twilight. But I'm going to say with Divergent, they did kind of keep the same names because it's Divergent, Insurgent and the Legion. So it's kind of, yeah. it makes yeah. sense a little bit. Whereas Twilight, the titles, well, they're all Dark Knight, Moon related, but Didn't they're they call still... Didn't Twilight Saga? No, well, okay. it's just Twilight, New Moon. Yeah, yeah, but it's called Twilight Saga. That's what Overall. it is with all But it's all not together. on the actual printed on the front okay. cover. It doesn't say the Twilight Saga. Uh, uh, well, I was thinking more of the films. For, I couldn't for, tell you about the for, films. For, for what they consider the dumb TV film audience that just casually see that it's called The Hunger Games, they think, oh, it's another Hunger Games film. But they did it for the Maze Runner, didn't they? They kept it saying The Maze Runner, yeah, yeah. and then it said, like, Scorch Trials for like, exactly. the second one, and then... Whereas the books are yeah. all separately titled and don't have that overall Maze Runner banner on them. No, but they do have a maze on... Well, my yeah. copies of them have a maze on every single book. Yeah, that's true. But again, it's that title that an audience yes. would recognise. Yeah. So I mean, it needs something like the tripods, The White Mountains. For a TV series, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, because they need to know it's the same But program. I'd still like to know what he would have... What, what was his thinking? Why didn't he like the tripods as a title? We got caught up in the moment. Maybe he just thought 
it didn't represent what the story was truly about. I suppose it doesn't, because it's more about Will's journey. Yes, their journey and, and, and stuff. And I suppose the that's resistance. what the books are. Mm. But yeah. Well, speaking of Will's journey, just to touch back on something we were talking about earlier, it might be in Actual Six B. You were criticising the whole. Will's what was it fairy tale dance with Eloise uh, and midnight <laughs> and I was wondering because yeah. it's been suggested to me that it might have been some foreshadowing for what they would have done in series three because frequently in the show Will is faced with a choice of temptation where he can choose to fulfill his own happiness or keep go- t- making the hard choice and helping to save the world and free the world from the tripods and Maybe in the pool of fire, he would have had a final temptation choice where he had to either save Eloise or basically turn off whatever was keeping her in what is it stasis. Cra- stasis. Want, yeah. It might have been he would have had to turn it off and kill her in order to destroy the tripods, and maybe midnight would have been a factor in that. But didn't Richard Bates say in one of the interviews that he was never going to go down that route anyway? With no, that? but it might have been one of the writers thought. Yeah, but if, he, if he's the head one and he didn't want to keep it in the script, he wouldn't have kept it there. Mm. Remember, he said he was like the script editor guy, didn't yes. he? It, yes. It, so it was 37 years ago, though. He could have forgotten. Mm. Richard mentioned uh, Ken Freeman's soundtrack. So we talked about how Ken did a Series 3 hypothetical soundtrack, what he would have done. And that mm. was released with the DVD release, wasn't it? Yeah, so that was 2009. Yeah, yeah. It it feels just like the original score he did for TV series. Yeah, it does. Even used some of the same synth sounds, didn't they? I like his soundtrack work overall. I found I found it interesting how he could make just by listening to it. I could imagine what the episode was going to be about. Mm. The the first one, plan of action. It has like this chase sequence feel about it. You know, there's some jeopardy involved. The later on, there's one called like freedom, and it's really grand. It's almost victorious. It's like like yes and you can feel the emotion of what the characters are going through without even seeing an episode or seeing them actually act it but that's how i felt from listening to it i think it's quite clever to make you feel something when it hasn't even been filmed mm. read something actually about how uh, ken freeman's contribution to the world of music is underappreciated because he basically invented synth strings mm. Although I couldn't get clarity on when he did that because a lot of sources say it was 1966, but that wasn't correct and it was more like, I think, 1970-71. Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds was 1976, so definitely by then. But I also noticed, for those that don't have the DVD box set, on Ken Freeman's personal website, which is topnote.co.uk, he has a section on the tripods and you can listen to the Pool of Fire suite there's a link to it on iTunes and there's a link to it as well on YouTube. Oh, that's good. And I think it's also on Spotify. So you can go and listen to it now, kids. After the episode, please, though. Oh, of course. <laughs> so Richard also talks about the how the merchandising to accompany the show was a complete disaster. So that's cool that they managed to build a tripod, but they didn't mass produce it. I believe it was a model kit, but I don't know how legitimate it was. Again, get in touch with the show to correct us. We'll be focusing on that more in the next episode. Exactly. We could have the answer by then. Yeah, hopefully. I wasn't there at the interview to ask him and I didn't quite catch it from the clip. I might have just not listened. My ears sometimes do that. But when he said that they just made this one-off piece, are you sure they didn't just make that this one-off piece because they actually used it for some of the action sequences? No, no he made it clear because John thought that and yeah. he, he said no, it, it was made it, it, as right. a toy. Well, it was a gift to him from the uh, visual effects team. It wasn't a working model. We were talking about the in the interview the poor choice of some of the other tie-in media products. Like the tie-in books that were released at the time had some really not exactly exciting image choices. No, just but, 
photos of, of the cast. Yeah. I mean, they're fine photos, but I guess they're yeah. not the most exciting to draw in people who don't know anything about the... Yeah, you're not going to pick up that book. No. Having not seen the TV series and having never read the book and go, oh, I wonder what this is. You're going to look at it and go, right, three lads. It, it doesn't three suggest on adventure, does no. it? No, it really doesn't. If anything, it just reminds me of a French textbook. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's well, they are in random France. people. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. So they're not thrilling, but I think that's because they're also from the first series, first publicity, series publicity picture. So there's no Fritz on no. the, the City of Golden Light or Paul, Pool of Fire. Exactly, poor Robin Hater thinking, great, I'm going to be on time book covers. And, and he wasn't, no. which sucks. And then they put the tripod on the back of the book. Yeah. Uh, the DVDs, though, I mean, was that 2009? Yeah, the, uh, the, the final one. Yeah, the front cover's not bad, but the DVD menu thumbnails are <laughs> really bad because there's no explanation. If you're stopping watching it for the day and you want to go back to it a few days later, trying to remember which episode you were on is like Mission Impossible because it's just, oh, it's a picture of Henry smiling. <laughs> which episode is that? Yeah, there's just one. Is Two, that is that the three, vineyard? Four, five, six, right. I didn't count how many I watched. Or it's a picture of Will. It's like, right, great, which episode is that? Yeah. Yeah, because like, you get a lot of them where, like, normally you, you click on the episode. This is all the DVDs. Yeah. And you get, like, you know, six clips, don't you, which you can go to different scenes yeah. in, in said episode, which gives you a quick overview going, ah, that might be the episode I'm on. But, yeah, that yeah. doesn't give you anything. Yeah, the tripod one does it. You go, I remember where I was. Tripod roulette. Okay, let's move the conversation on a bit. So now we're going to listen to Will Hadcroft, who talked to Sam Yud about what happened to the rights to the tripods after the BBC. Disney uh, are holding on to the film rights for what feels like perpetuity to the tripods. Yeah. Uh, had he signed that deal when he spoke to you? Yes, yeah. It, I asked him about a, a movie adaptation, and he said, yeah, Touchstone, mm. I think, is part of Disney. Yeah. There were certain things he wasn't so keen on in that. He, he said he'd signed the whole thing over to them, so much with the BBC TV series and Richard Bates's production of that. Yeah. It, it was just, right, I've signed it over, and I didn't do what they like with it, because it had no power. It wasn't like with J.K. Rowling saying, yeah. if you don't do X, Y, Z, you're not having it. He didn't have that clout. No. He signed it over, and then it, it comes out however it comes out. He didn't like them transposing the first version, the first script that they came up with for the movie. Oh, they tran- wrote one. Yeah, they transposed the whole thing to America. Yeah. So it's like in the book where it's the future, but it looks like the yeah. past. So it looked like 18th century, but a sort of Huckleberry Finn type of yeah. 18th century because it's in America. Mm. So that thing of being in the future, but there's no technology... So Will Parker and Henry would have been sort of like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn type characters. Uh, And then they would meet Beanpole later on. Um, And the White Mountains were going to be... um, Montana, maybe? Yeah, yeah. The whole thing was in in, uh, America, all of it. So even the Chateau and all of that, you know. Beanpole wouldn't be French. I think they were getting around that with him being French Canadian. Um, I'm sure that's Clever. what I'm sure that's what Sam Clever. told me. It, the thing he he was not so keen on as well with the White Mountains were not white because they were covered in snow. Yeah. The the tripods were mining beryllium ore, and the uh, the deposits right. made the mountains look white on top. So it was quite a departure. Yes. The last treatment 
for it was by the director Alex Prius, who did iRobot. I remember reading rumours about that. And I think uh, knowing that film with uh, Nicolas Cage. And he had written a, a, a script based on the White Mountains. Yeah. And, and it was more faithful to the book. It was set, set in England to start off with, yeah. then move over to France, then to Germany. And I remember reading that Alex Prius... This plan was make the White Mountains as a self-contained story, yeah. so that if it doesn't do well, you have a, a story ending. with yeah. an ending that they get to the mountains. If it does do well, well, shoot City of Gold and Pool of Fire back to back, so that the, the young the young actors don't age well in the process of the thing being made. <laughs> yeah. But that hasn't seen the light of day either. Uh, Sam told me that there's a clause in the contract with Disney that if no other studio approaches them with a request to purchase the rights yeah. to make it themselves, it just automatically gets renewed. So Disney has sat on this. Yeah. Um, there's no signs of them making it, and nobody else can make it unless they buy the rights no, off no. them. So we'll start with Tripodcast crowdfunding page now. <laughs> I, I, the, the, thing about, the other thing he mentioned was the novelisation. He, he said you have a list of things... Yeah. Uh, commercial merchandise. Things. Yeah, merchandising. Yeah. So with tripods, this tripods, that. Yeah. And he said there was only one thing on the list that he vetoed, and mm. that was they wanted to do a novelization of the movie. He said no to that, because if they had done a novelization of the movie, that would have killed the White Mountains book, Stone Dead. Of course, because it would have conflicted on shelves, I suppose. Yeah, or, the, the or audience who, saw, who didn't know about the books and saw the movie first would assume the novelisation was his book Yeah, that it's based on. Uh, so he said no to that, to keep the White Mountains alive. Yeah. I don't think it's... I don't think anything's going on with it now, since the Alex Proyas uh, no. one. No, it's a shame, because Alex Proyas was... You know, Dark City was, was very good. iRobot yeah. was successful. Yeah. You know, by the sounds of it, his White Mountains was pretty faithful. So, yeah, you know, could have had a, a good film there. Who knows? Maybe someone at Disney Plus might have an idea of going, hey, we, have we got any young adult dystopias under option right now? Yeah. Someone needs to remind them of what they've got. Yeah. So that was Will Hadcroft. So I keep seeing a lot of fans even now posting online and places like Twitter and Reddit saying, oh, it's a shame the BBC never finished it. Oh, they should finish it. Why don't they finish it? They could make another series of it. Or why don't Big Finish finish it? Because that's quite a common thing Big Finish do. Oh, I see those kind of comments. Mm, Big Finish do a lot, don't they? Yeah, so I mean, they've done they... Star Cops and Blake Seven. So yeah. I could believe Big Finish would do it if they could. But no, they can't no. because Disney got the rights in the late 90s. Like I said to Will in that clip, Alex Proyas has a good track record as a filmmaker. Mm. And I think his version would have been very good. I believe the script exists and he's somewhere out there on the web. Oh. But, but we'll never get to see it. If it's out there on the web... Why haven't you told us this before? This is new information, yeah, John. Cut that, cut that bit if No, we're not true. putting this bit. I need to do some the, research. The, the, you haven't divulged this information to us that we're angry about it. I don't because, have a copy. Be, I don't care, <laughs> because we could have been researching this ourselves. And mm. we could have been telling our lovely audience about it. And maybe they could have found it. And we might have had a script <laughs> that everyone would have enjoyed to read. But no. You kept it secret. Yeah. <laughs> Bad John. <laughs> Sorry.
Well, that's good that that one would have been back in Europe because, yeah, Sam Yeud would have been sad if it had been moved to America given how he does feature Switzerland and Guernsey and those locations in so many of his books other than the tripods. I get the impression those places mean something to well, him, well, so maybe... I, I'm, I'm reading one of his other novels, uh, The Gull's Kiss, which is set in Geneva, in Switzerland, in the Walser Mountains, as you say, that's a place that he mm. he'd, he'd visited and lived for a while. Same with Guernsey. Yeah, you know, he, it's he, in Guernsey's in Sarnia, which I'm reading. So he clearly has a connection to those places. Yeah, which, about places he knows. Which we'll touch upon more in a future episode. But I mm. think thinking on it now, knowing more about that, makes even more of an impression to me why he didn't like the original idea of it being transposed to America. Because an American company takes something on doesn't mean it has to be set in America. No, and I think that was nowadays, a problem before. Yeah, and I think nowadays they're better at knowing that things don't have to be set necessarily mm. in America. I mean, they still like to do all that kind of thing, but at the end of the day, Americans can watch something set in England and believe that it's relatable. I, I think it's film executives trying to play safe. Uh, yeah. When the audience don't need to be played safe, well, they've, they're trying they've to get done the... that with anime dubs like Glitter Force, which is the a redub of Smile Precure, and it's really weird watching it because you've got the characters at one point say, "Oh yeah, we're going on a school trip to Japan," and you're like, "I can't wait to try the food," and you're like, "Oh ah, yeah, so... what? You're in Japan? You're eating <laughs> Japanese food for school? <laughs> yeah, school? yeah, really? no, yeah. Honestly, so I've just been watching this Korean drama, and I watched it, and I'm going out there, I watched it dubbed because I'm doing other things at the same time so I was like I'm not going to be able to watch the subtitles constantly so I watched it dubbed and he literally rings the police about this character and in the dubbed version bearing in mind it's in South Korea right the whole show's in South Korea well she mustn't be an alien because she speaks English she mustn't be a foreigner because she speaks English. Um. Because obviously they're speaking English because it's a dubbed version. But, in South but, Korea. but if it was subtitled, it would have it would have been well. She can't be a foreigner because she's speaking Korean. Mm. And it was just like you could have kept that as the dubbed version. A dubbed version did need, not need to change it to English. My brain could comprehend yeah. that it was saying Korean, even though I'm here in English. Mm. Like I didn't need that weird change. No, and a really horrible example was Tokyo Mew Mew was dubbed for American audiences. And they changed it to Mew Mew Power because they thought children wouldn't like to watch them at, with Tokyo in the title. And apparently <laughs> they changed the dubbing describing food they were eating from Japanese food to things like donuts, even though you could clearly see the characters are eating Japanese food. Yeah, it's just the stupid. O- the only example I could think of where it's turned out well was Matilda because the film Danny DeVito sets it in America and her parents are trailer trash and it just works really well. The story of Matilda doesn't really depend on what country she's in no, that it much. Doesn't, no, it doesn't. It's it, not specific to No, to, to you, being could, you could Britain, have that in it? any country and the story, the essence of the story is the same. Because, I mean, what, what country is Charlie the Chocolate Factory set in? It's it, in a hypothetical, mythical European country. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the original a, film was made in Germany. Mm, it's not meant to be a specific... No. It's supposed to be like a timeless place. Uh, like, series of unfortunate events, yeah. that's a weird one. Oh, yeah, where's that? That's mm. America, but mm. a weird, yeah, Again. a weird America. Even in the books, it's very American in feel. Speaking of Disney, this is another point I, f- I forgot to mention in regards to the TV show, and because we're talking about the rest areas, and, the, you know, the, the humans have their own separate areas in the city to the masters, and it's kind of a bit like Disney World in that respect. <laughs> you know, they have secret underground tunnels for all the staff. 
do they? Yeah. Mm. And same with the rubbish, the bins, like the rubbish yeah. bins are connected to like this underground bit so that you'll never see like the bins being emptied and stuff. Yeah, because after Disneyland yeah. was built, Disney wasn't happy seeing, what was it, an astronaut smoking in Frontierland. Yeah. It, oh, right. it, bro- it breaks the illusion. So they've got so, secret breakout. So when so. they did Disney World, he built it on a platform so it's actually what? the ground level is actually the sub level of Disney World. So it's actually built above. I no and it's idea. got a whole secret underground network. Same with all the other Disney parks since yeah. with tunnels and everything. So that way someone wow. can get across the park underground without the costume mismatching to the rest. Oh yeah, because I imagine they're not allowed to be seen with their heads off or whatever, are they? No, no. And there's so many bins, so many yards, because he determined that there was only going to be like so many steps you'd take before you'd be like, oh, I'm not going to go to a bin. <laughs> so that's why you see bins in so many locations mm. and stuff. There's lots of things he did. Yeah, and, and it's, I think people can visit below ground, but they're not allowed to take footage or photos of it. Oh, no, there's photos and footage of it. But only certain people are allowed to yeah. take those. Well, I bet there's a whole conspiracy theory about all these uh, tunnels. Probably. I mean, there's all kinds of like special secret areas for rich people as well, isn't there? Yeah. What? That you don't notice yeah. if no one told you. There's like Club 33 That's, and stuff. Yeah. The, there's the um, in Disney World. There's a a special room that's in, inside Cinderella's castle that you can't even pay to get into it, but they give it like as a thing every once in a blue moon as a as a special reward, and it's mm. all done up. Yeah. Sorry, this is proper off tangent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like the city of Golden Lead where. The humans have their own sectors that are completely unseen by the masters, where they're resting or just socialising, or the hospitals even, and things yeah, like course. that. Yeah, the hospital, the pink parrot, the botanical gardens, the masters can't get in there because it's mm. Earth atmosphere. It's a bit like that. I've, I've just found out the 2003 Tripods movie script is available on the internet. Oh. I don't think the Alex Proyas one is. I think that was 2012 or 13. But certainly the first one is out there, so it might be interesting to track down and have a look mm. at. Yeah, I think so. But the early 2000s, they were trying to get the next Harry Potter for... Yeah, they were. Oh, 100%. Uh, they still are. Yeah, because at the time, I remember... Percy I... Jackson, two two films. Oh, I remember 2003-04, they were talking about adapting the Artemis Fowl books, and it's only just now happened. Didn't we just do one film and give up? Yeah, but again, it was just now that it's happened. Yeah. It sounds like it must have been production mm. hell. I don't really know enough about that, but I just remember it being one of the things they were talking about in 2003-04, saying, oh, this is going to be made <laughs> into a film. Well, it happens in a lot of genres, though, as well. Like, I've just recently watched a film, um, uh, The Little Things, with Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, Jared Leto. It mm. um, only came out, what was it, 2021? And it was written in 1993 and was in production hell till 2019. Oh, it Duke, makes uh, Duke yeah. Nukem not look so bad now. Yeah, sometimes it's like an executive green lights it and then leaves and their replacement mm. doesn't want to keep any of the projects of their predecessor mm. or they don't like it or, as you say, they just well, can't get it to work. that kind of happened with tripods, wasn't it? There were a change at the top. Mm. So the person who greenlit it... David Reed. ...wasn't the same person who waxed it. No, it was his replacement, Jonathan Powell. Mm. Who just didn't like... Sci-fi. Okay, so we're going to move on a bit now and listen to John Shackley talking about his encounters with fans and a bit about the legacy of the tripods. Have you had much to do with the tripods fandom? Unfortunately, no. And I think that's partly because, you know, I left the UK in 95 and kind of Mm. off the grid. 
as it were, establishing my career and getting a secure job. And funnily enough, when I was working at the Marriott in Vienna uh, in the late 90s, there was a TV show called Hello Austria, Hello Vienna, which was a 30-minute program that they showed basically just to people to understand what it was like. And it was in English, presented by English presenters. Yeah. And I met one of the guys who was presenting it at the hotel, and I was serving him tea and coffee, and I told him, you know, oh, it's great. Where do you want to shoot? Because they wanted to shoot some stuff. I asked him, do you want to shoot, you know, shooting video or film? Mm. And he said, what? And he asked me, and I said, no, because I worked with that. You know, I think I did uh, about five or six different, uh, five or six episodes with them. Mm. And it was very little money, you know, it was peanuts. But it was just a bit of fun to get back in under the lights and stuff like that again and yeah. do the uh, presenting of the next um, interview or the next five-minute show going down the marketplace. You know, that was kind of cool. I was going to mention... I've seen your costume from the Tripod City. It's in the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi, which is in Allendale in, in Northumberland. So, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go near it. It probably stinks been that old. <laughs> well, it was behind a glass screen. It's just unusual. It's mostly Doctor Who in that museum. But there's this one thing from the Tripods. And I think I've asked others this as well. The Tripods, it's always kind of, it's this footnote of British sci-fi television. But... There's like probably a core group of like 100 fans here in the UK and in Germany and New Zealand and America. But that cult I found from starting this podcast is very dedicated. What do you think it is that helped to endure? Is it the themes, do you think? Is it your acting? Definitely not my acting. I think it's probably <laughs> for me to try to guess what would keep people interested in it for so long. I would bulk at the word that says cult because it has kind of a negative terminology unfortunately over yeah. the last number of years but i would say say instead of cult i would say devoted devoted yeah. fandoms. i think the reason is humbly speaking i think the idea of the story and in some ways stories are cyclic they keep coming around right you know mm. and it's kind of more pertinent today that one is not wanting to be controlled one is wanting to be free to make the right decisions but also be respecting of other people mm. right you know, and you can see that in in the uh, in the second series, in the first episode, where we're all training and working out. Yeah. We still have restaurants and bars, and we still respect each other. You know, we still listen to what people have to say, and I think that and, and respect that, and and be genuine and honest and truthful as much as you can. You know, that's where the story for me was that someone would think, you know, to go into the future and yet go back in time. Mm -hmm from present day was kind of like a, a cool idea. I thought that was original in itself. You're, you're in the future, right? It's 2079 mm. or whatever. But yeah. in actual fact, you're looking at maybe 1879 or, or 1770. Yeah. You know, for me, I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's like that. And also I think because it was pioneer for its day, they used particular special effects that had never been used before um, by anyone in television. Now we look back and we go, oh, my God, what is this? And even looking at it then, you know, after seeing Star Wars, it's, it looks a little bit sort of, uh, you know, I remember thinking it's not as good as Star Wars because you want everything to be as good as Star Wars, but nothing will ever be as good as Star Wars, even today. Yeah, yeah but I think that's why people are devoted, you know, because the, the story was really intriguing. Um, the adventure of young kids doing, doing this and having that, not knowing what's going to happen. And just hoping beyond hope that they'll be successful, right? Yeah. Carrying these bags and walking wherever they want to go and not really reading a compass and going, are we going the right way? And not really knowing, you know, but still trying because they wanted to be themselves and they wanted to be free. I think that is 
that is even today, you know, not listening to what the big boss always tells you to do, you know, it's a, the prime minister, the president, or the, 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 whoever it may be, mm. telling me what to do, you know, but having the opportunity to listen and understand to what is right and doing what's right. You know, I like that. Maybe that's the reason why. Certainly not the acting from me, that's for sure. <laughs> So that was John Shackley. It, it, it's a good point, he says, about people choosing their own destiny and choosing to listen to leaders or not. And obviously that's quite a divisive issue at the moment. Yes, yeah. But it's a timeless theme, isn't it? Oh, yeah, because it comes up in other sci-fi. It's a timeless theme in general in life as well, isn't it? But yeah. it, I think we said this before in earlier episodes about it's a trope of young adult fiction that it's the, the kids that are saying, no, 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 look, the world's in danger of being ignored. Again, Bringing Harry Potter up as an example, he's called a liar when he says Voldemort's back. Mm, People don't like uncomfortable truths, and that's a big problem at the moment. People don't like to be made to think about things. Is that the title of a climate change documentary, An Inconvenient Truth? Something like that. Mm. And I think as well, like, how many people just go, well, you're a child... You I mean, don't know what you're on about. Look, you're a child. I, yes. Look, look that at doesn't how, mean anything. Look at Greta Thunberg, yeah. for example. The way that she's vilified by a lot of, of leaders and, and, and she and, and children that she's inspired, they're concerned about the world they're going to grow up in and they're just dismissed as, oh, kids, what do you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got an issue now with uh, quite pertinent. It's in the news this week about schools in America voting to remove mouse from the reading lists. For, for 12 to 13-year-olds, I believe, mm. which is an age group, but it's aimed at. And they're alleging things like, oh, it's because of a nudity. And it's like, right, well, we had to watch Escape from Sobby Bar in year eight, <laughs> and there was nudity in that because that's what the Nazis did. They'd strip the for, inmates. For the gas chamber, yeah. But it's really concerning that there's this clamping down on difficult ideas and challenging subjects, and people need to learn about these things. I don't think they give credit to the children. They think, mm. oh, it's too much of a big idea for them to understand yeah. or concept or appreciate. And it's patronising. Yeah, it is, and it's just like, no, I should give them more credit where credit's due. Do you know what I mean? I remember 9-11. I was 10, year six in primary school. I remember the teachers had it on the TV in this one area. So, so they, they put it on the TV they for you? They put it on the TV. The teachers were watching it. They only let the year sixes look, to be fair. Right. Because they're, yeah. you know, 10-year-olds. But even then, at 10 years old, I understood the world changed. This is a big, oh. massive... You know, changing life. It, it, it is one of those things of where were you and Elvis died kind of moments. Yeah, and, you know, and everyone's got a story. That's it. And and I like I say, I, I remember I remember vividly like seeing that footage and knowing like the world had changed. And it's it's very similar to what I would like to say. I've just recently watched Kenneth Branagh talk on Graham Norton because he's done a film about his childhood being in Belfast and the child character's based on him being like six or seven or something. And, and it's that thing of there is a certain point where your childhood ends and I think a lot of people think that kids childhoods end later than they do and I think we're bubbling and protecting people and making them mm-hmm. naive more than they need to be I'm not saying like yeah go out there and <laughs> destroy a child's childhood <laughs> but I think we need to give them more credit that they can understand big concepts mm. I've heard this it's suggested that that's what's been happening with all these young people having an outcry against uh eating meat because they're not made aware when the children of what that means and what it involves and I think again it's too wrapping kids in cotton wool I agree because that wasn't shielded from me as a kid what I was eating 
No, the best story I've ever heard <laughs> is a story of you being like five or six and going to the butchers with our granddad and seeing all the pig carcasses hung up and you just went, are they piggies? And the butcher's going, uh, yeah. And then you just went, oh, good, I like sausages. No, it was pork. <laughs> I said, it. I like pork. There we go, there you go. I like pork. See, even at that age, you were just like, no, oh, I know where it comes from. <laughs> my granddad would always joke, would see, yeah. I'd see cute lambs in the field and say, oh, cute lambs. And my granddad said, good with mint sauce. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. It wasn't shielded from me. And unfortunately, it does seem to be getting shielded from kids these days. It, in, in our family, my son, he's uh, autistic. And the first time we ever bought a whole chicken shopping with him there was probably about seven or eight he, he called it a dead chicken and from now on <laughs> a, 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 from now on a full chicken is only referred to as a dead chicken whenever we, we buy them or, or cook them he's not wrong a, exactly there's a lot more patronizing going on of children in terms of like tv shows made for children now are less challenging than they were decades ago i think mm. I mean, I've seen clips of shows from the 80s and they were not afraid to show things like death. And now it is that is really yeah. shied away from. Yeah, I think I think that's very much but even in an issue nowadays. Family shows. How many times in Doctor Who, in the RTD and Moffat years, did they shy away from that? Like that they didn't girl show who, deaths, did they? Like they turned that girl into a flagstone instead of her being killed. Yeah. You know, it was always stuff like that. No on-screen blood, no oh. on-screen deaths. In the Tripod's books, Eloise dies. It's made very clear she's not alive. She, she, she's like a butterfly, yeah. like we said, mm, uh, yeah. preserved. I was going to say, though, it's not on a tangent, my, my daughter, who is 11 now, she seems to be about the age where you can have an intelligent conversation with, with her. Uh, and I'm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just picking up the wall anyway. She'll, like, she'll kill me when she hears this, when she's older. But I, I would say you can have a, an intelligent conversation with a child when they're about 10 or 11. They watch news round at school, which, mm. which doesn't dumb down, but explains world events in, in a way that they understand. And so you're very aware of climate change, aware of the plant versus animals lifestyle. And also I think we kind of forget that, I mean, I remember when I was 11 and I went to high school, no matter what the TV wanted to shield me from at that age or what my parents mm. wanted to shield me from at that age, you heard it from all the oldest kids because you got thrown in with up to 16-year-olds mm. and they're, they're nearly adults at that point. I just, I think we don't need to shield people so much. No, and certainly in regards to things like the Holocaust, it's really important that it's taught in schools. Mm. Oh, yeah, like um, in America, I don't know which state it was brought in a thing where parents can now report teachers if they taught their kids something that they didn't feel was appropriate. As I say, I know they've got little issues, aren't they, in certain states in America where they teach like creationism and they won't teach evolution. Uh, it, or like it's that. as valid as, as yeah. evolution. Yeah, because you have to teach balance on perspectives and mm. things, but there's also this false equivalency that's being pushed right now where not everything's equal. For example, people who know the Earth is round versus flat Earthers, that's not equal. But One side's proven, got it's, science it's, and it's evidence round, and the so. other's just an opinion. All these conspiracy theory ideas about faking the moon landing or flat earth, these things would cost an absolute fortune. But how to keep everybody quiet as well. Yeah. Another field work for yeah. NASA. It's the same with the COVID conspiracies about nanochips and <laughs> paying off people like Dan to lie. Oh, that yep. cost an absolute fortune. <laughs> yep, because the NHS can totally afford to pay me off to lie <laughs> and say that COVID is a real thing when it's not. I could literally, with the amount of money I've been given to, to lie about COVID, uh, I could go to Disney, buy the rights, make my own film. 
<laughs> no, we make all three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all three. Make it a trilogy. And you know what? I I just film all three back to back. So there's yes. I don't care what happens. They're already there. Exactly. Like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving back to... So about the tripods. That was a major tangent. <laughs> I have a feeling Kerry's going to cut a lot of this. Oh. We'll see. It's an interesting point there raised by John Shackley about his aversion to the term cult because I, I guess it does have those negative connotations to some people. Yeah, I suppose when you consider Waco or, or the other extremists like that. I've always thought of cult as a negative word, to be fair. Mm. Hearing stories of like it gets cults in America. And, yeah. But, like, but often when they're talking about cults in America, they're talking about sects and, you know, S E C T. Yes. yes, not cults and the misusing Cult TV, the yeah. words. So it's, it has grown and oh yeah, in but its I, perception as a negative thing. I know, but what I meant was I was thinking of like you know the ones where it was like was it Charles Manson and stuff and all those oh, ones doing yeah. the Kool Aid drinking actual yes. cults. Yes, yes, and also yeah, we we might have to cut that because we don't want them stalking <laughs> no, no. us. <laughs> That's a serious concern. I know. Can we get that out? Yeah, there's that negative connotation with the term. And... That's true. Although in some in some ways, cult TV enthusiast has been a phrase that's been around since the late 90s in, in Britain, mm. certainly. There's even a magazine called Cult Times, which was a spin-off of the TV column from TV Zone. Ah, oh, see, I'm familiar with TV Zone. I remember. Is that still around? No. No, yeah, it, remember it folded, that. unfortunately. It was a great magazine. It had some fantastic tripods articles. No, I remember it in the 90s. Lots of other TV. I don't know. I guess perceptions on whether a TV show is mainstream or cult. I, th- I think TV's moved on a lot since then because now yeah. TV's so fragmented, a lot of shows are quite niche now. And mm. I guess it's just how we categorise these things that have changed a lot because there's so many debates now about ratings and stuff and how they're not really yeah. as important as they used to be because it's no. more looking at the longevity of a program and yeah. it's global sales merchandise sales and it's yeah. long-term streaming prospects so i guess cult tv might be a bit of a date i'm not sure it's a debate isn't it it'll be an interesting debate to have yeah. but not one we have space for here although i'm definitely opposed to the term hoovian i just think that that sounds worse than trekkie really I yeah. don't care either way. Well, what would you prefer, pros instead? Doctor Who fan. <laughs> that's okay. boring. <laughs> that's really naff, John. That is so boring. <laughs> nah, I, I go nah, with Whovian. Whovian. You're I a Whovian. I won't wear that badge. <laughs> what, what about a Whoa? No, that sounds a stupid. <laughs> that sounds more stupid than Trekker. Trekker. Who even uses that? Again, it's that eternal debate, isn't it? Between Trekkie mm. and Trekkers. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Obviously, the Tripod fandom call themselves the League of Freemen, but what else That's could they call themselves? That makes sense, Tri- though. Trippies, I suppose, which comes from uh, yeah, the, the, the day the Tripods came. Tri- but, but that Although does sound we... like a dangerous religious cult then, doesn't it? Yeah, and also we wouldn't be trippies, would we, because trippies were brainwashed by, brainwashed the, masters. by the masters. So we wouldn't mm. want to really... We wouldn't be, we'd still be free men and women. Although I guess free men is very much an insider term, because anyone, if you said to someone, oh, yeah, I'm a free man... Yeah. Most, yeah. Every person's not going to know what you mean, whereas Trekkie people know. Oh, yeah, yeah, but is that not also because Star Trek is mainstream, mm. whereas yeah. Tripods really is not? No. It's it, a niche you know, mm. programme. It's a niche set of books. Yes, don't mm. use the C word. People ask what this podcast I'm working on is. 
No one knows what I'm talking about. I, I, know, I just it's, keep it's, saying it's sad, it's, isn't it? I just keep saying it's a niche sci-fi. I, I, I've had um, a friend at work who's who appreciates sci-fi. He's not a fan like like we are, but you know because it's me. He's listened to to some of our podcasts and he's enjoyed. He's even listened to Gareth Preston's Very British Futures and he's he's enjoyed those. You know, he might not know the series. He's enjoyed the discussion and, and the people that have have taken part. So there is hope for people. Hope for people. <laughs> In fact, just is very weak. I've seen on Twitter um, an American family who who got the the four tripod novels for Christmas, which mm. they'd never heard of, and the whole family has has become hooked. Maybe they should get it back on school reading list. So of course, I told them about the podcast. Yeah, well, it's good to see people still getting into it and discovering the books. Yeah, like like Danny even. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna make my children read them. Or what's the series at least? No, get them to read them first. I'd say get them to read them first. I, I do like the TV series, but I don't think it does the books justice. It, I think it's like The Lord of the Rings. Mm. You can appreciate both without favouring one or the other. I favour the books. I'll put myself on that stand, but I favour the books. And for me, it might be because the series was never ended. It yeah. got cancelled, and that could be a big part of it. You know, it never... <laughs> Unless your kids already watch really old stuff like Blake Seven and Doctor Who, maybe show them the books first. They've seen some classic Doctor Who, but have found it a little slow and and uh, that's what I mean. And, and if they're and, not and, and used up. to that kind of pacing and stuff, young people seem to struggle a bit with older stuff. Yeah, and I get that because yeah, I'm, I mean the pacing doesn't bother me. One not like other. It's no. purely just that I prefer the books, but I think I prefer the books because it, it goes back to what we said. In previous episodes, it's that thing. Why I loved Harry Potter and the and and, mm. and the Order of the Phoenix. He's a sarcastic little bastard. Oh yeah, and I liked that because that, that's you. Yeah, and Will has that same kind of angry at the world attitude mm. that when I was a teenager I experienced. So it was so relatable yeah. from a reading point of view that I could really relate to how he was feeling. And yeah. I, and I think. For me, the book gets that feeling across better than the TV series yeah. does. In the TV series, you just think, oh, he likes to have a fight, he's a bit of an ass. But, <laughs> but from the book... But it's the same with the Harry Potter films. Book Harry is far better than film Harry. Yeah, I think I'm advocating the books. OK, let's move things on a bit now. We're going to listen to Robin Hayes to talk about his experiences with the fans. You were saying you'd been to a few of the conventions and the... Memorabilia. No, I only did memorabilia I did once mm. in uh, Birmingham. And I really enjoyed it. And I just didn't go back, not because, but because ostensibly it was kind of, yeah. you know, I got a few quid, turned up and did it. I mean, it was very nice of them because I didn't have to pay for my table yeah. or for the, uh, the uh, announcements on the tannoys. <laughs> but I wasn't actually paid to be there. Yeah, I had to sort of go there by my own steam. And I really enjoyed the experience. But... I think tripods is a bit more obscure. I don't think there's the call for it for people to, you know, like the huge conventions. You know, it'd be lovely if there were. And so most of the fan clubs have been on a smaller scale. You know, the, the, the famous guy is Adrian Andrews, who sadly is not with us anymore. But he was the guy who founded the League of Freemen, the Tripods fan club back in the 80s. Yeah. And it started in a small hut out sort of in Richmond way. And it, it was just a really lovely guy. And we went along quite happily to do those. And then that re-emerged again in, in the era of the internet around 2000, 
seven, I think it was, something like that. Yeah, um, I think there's video of it on YouTube. Yeah, um, through them and through Graz, who's one of his uh, guys who took yeah. it over for a while. Uh, so I've been involved in a few events. And Jim Baker, obviously, who, who was an actor in, 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 the, in, in the series. But... No, nothing, nothing to no. the extent of the Doctor Who and all that. I'd love to, but it hasn't quite got to that level. I haven't been overwhelmed by uh, knowledge and criteria about no. the thing. No, you, you just get people pestering you to appear on podcasts. Oh, not at all. Yeah, no, I've been to. Um, I had a really great time actually. Uh, Jim, uh, who uh, played Henry, as you know. Uh, mm. Bill's brother in the series had been somebody that really sort of took the ball forward with uh, the fan yeah. club and, and certainly from you know the side of the cast uh, he was like very much in, into keeping it going and in fact it yeah. was him it was integral to the screening the cult of you know the BBC Four yeah. thing the tripods when the box set came out actually I, w- I was supposed to be in the, the box set interviewed as well that you didn't know. happen I don't know why they didn't have the budget for it or something so we didn't put in much much effort to the extras. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I I I, I was taken to dinner actually by the yeah. people that were doing it, and there was a talk of being interviewed <laughs> for the extras, but it didn't happen for me. But it, yeah. but Jim did it. Yeah, I mean, I was very pleased that Jim Jim kept it forward. You know, I heard your appearance on Radio Five last year, where where you you phoned into their their show after. Been tipped off that they were talking about the tripods. Yeah, that's right. How, that was, how did that feel? Well, that was um, I can't remember how it happened, but it was a friend of mine that that yeah. said they're talking about the tripods on this show. I think you should call them. <laughs> and I wasn't doing anything, so I said okay. And I phoned them, and they were chuffed to bits, and so was I. Yeah. So it's nice to know there are people that aren't part of the League of Freemen that still remember the program fondly. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that because I I really uh, enjoyed it. They seemed quite pleased. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of fans out there. I mean, the thing is that the generation that saw it as a kid, I can say exactly the same, John. Well, for me, it was, you know, Land of the Giants, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Time Tunnel. I mean, mainly big American stuff. But, you know, you remember that stuff. You know, when you're a kid, these things, they are part of your Mm. landscape. You enjoy them and they, they fuel the imagination and they're great. So to be part of any of that, and even, you know, if I go back and return to stuff that I remember years ago, I think, oh, it's not that great. We <laughs> <laughs> think, well, oh, actually, it could have been better. But, hey, it is what it is at the time. Yeah. And uh, actually, tri- for my you know, tripods at the time was, was pretty damn good you know, for the budget they had. So Robin Hayter there, I liked that point he made at the end there about how stuff sticks with you if you see it as a child. Mm-hmm. A show you see as a child that you cherish can be a very different feeling to something you might have been introduced to as an adult that you didn't necessarily see as a kid. I think this applies to Doctor Who and Star Trek fans, mm. that the ones that are lifelong fans who are real died in the wall are the ones who were introduced to it as children. My earliest memory of watching Doctor Who was when I was four. I wouldn't say I became a fan fan until I was 13, but, you know, it's something that I'd always seen growing up. So thanks, Mum, for putting it on for me. 
And the same thing applies now. Look at Dot Two. It came back in 2005. There's people that I see on Facebook and Twitter talking about how they're like six or seven when the show came back and they stuck with it. You know, yeah, I'm and, seeing that a lot, actually. And, and they've gone back and watched the classic series as well. I see a you lot know. of Doctor Who fans on Twitter who got into it by Matt Smith or David Tennant or yeah. Eccleston. And, and they were children. And they were little kids saying how they were scared. Which is great. The Weeping uh, Angel scares me as a 30-year-old adult. Just putting it out there. Nope, that, that's fine. I haven't played the Lonely <laughs> Assassins game for that reason. And I'm 47. <laughs> so. The shows that I watched as a kid that I really cherish, like Chronicles of Narnia, Dark Season. But then I was shown the Box of Delights for the first yeah. time the other year. And... As an adult watching it, I could see flaws and I'm thinking, I bet if I saw this as a kid, I'd have loved it and I'd still be looking at it fondly now. But because I saw it first as an adult, it was difficult getting past certain bits of the acting or certain mm. padding plot things, where, which were quite circular. Whereas with stuff like Chronicles of Narnia, I go back and watch it and I'm just feeling like a kid again. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I they, so there can be that difference. So I imagine there are people who saw the Tripods TV series as kids and it's stuck in their mind. And I have seen people on Twitter saying things like, oh, God, this show scared me so much as a kid. Yeah. Whereas I didn't get to experience that because I didn't see it as a kid. Mm, I know what you mean. I didn't see it as a kid. So it makes me a little sad I didn't get to experience that. I can see... I can see which parts would make me would have been made me a bit scared as a kid if I'd have seen it. I wonder if children or people who were children say younger than me or, or even my age because I was 10 when the first series was on just remember it being wall to wall of the tripods rather than just one minute of tripod action every episode you know that childhood memory because mm. I've got childhood memories mixed up of Doctor Who Fort of Doomsday and Blake 7 games and the adventure game series all mixed up in my head as the same thing until I untangled them when I was an adult and got into these series and reading up on them all and became, you know, a proper fan. Mm. I'd love people to rediscover it, the TV show. And, and the, read the books. And the books. Because, and Robin mentioned how it's quite obscure in comparison to stuff like the bigger shows like Doctor Who and Blake 7. Yeah. And how accessible is Tripods right now? Is it easy to get the DVD? And is it even available to stream anywhere, like BritBox? No. It, to me, it should be on BritBox. Uh, officially, they have the right. Uh, officially, oh. officially, it's out of print, the DVD. Mm. Uh, you can probably still get it at a reasonable price. There were some dodgy copies on YouTube, but I think they're either blocked or... Uh, the Cult of Tripods or, is definitely or, or blocked on YouTube. And, and looking at, again, Facebook and Twitter, there are American fans who love the books... And Don't know about know. the series, but have never seen it because they never had the chance. Well, some I've seen say they haven't even heard of the series. No. Like what? So some US fans have seen it, but others, like you said, they either don't know it exists or they don't have access to it. Okay, so I've had a quick check and it appears that all 25 episodes of The Tripods are freely available to watch on YouTube's often forgotten rival, Daily Motion. The quality doesn't look the best, but at least it can still be seen somewhere. Right, so we're going to have an interview double bill now. First up is Jim Baker, who will be discussing some of his memories of the series, as well as his reaction to its cancellation. Then we'll move right on to Richard Bates, who will tell us about what he's been working on recently. Does it feel strange that you're still talking about this programme that you were in when you were a 16-year-old? Does it ever feel it's, surreal? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite incredible. And you guys, I mean, you're... I started looking on the internet some years ago for tripods to see what there was, and I didn't think there could be anything new. But you've proved me wrong. You've set up a new <laughs> podcast about the show and the books, which is, it just proves to you that it, the, the, the writing is there. 
the stories there and the people are interested. It, it might not be the biggest thing since War of the Worlds, um, <laughs> but it's a great story and people really get hooked by it, you know. And it was shown, I think, 10 years later, something like that in Germany and in Europe. And it went to Australia and around the world. And it, it got quite a following, you know, it really was quite a popular story. It's a good cause. It's a good story. Perhaps we need to do a bit more of that now, you know, yeah. getting out yeah. there and fighting for it's, what they believe in. We've asked this with the other uh, guys about the themes of the tripods. What do you think the themes of the tripods have to say for today? You know, what's happening in the modern world right now? I, I've always looked at the books um, very much of their time, of the 60s. Linking it to now, I haven't done much of that, to be honest. <laughs> The story can be transferred to now, but it has to be told in a different way. Obviously, the technology is completely different on one thing and another, but the controlling influence, that could be anything, couldn't it? It could be the three-legged alien. It mm. could be the government. It could be a mobile phone. It could be characters like Trump and what have you that come along and use use things like social media to exert control. I, I've always labelled and seen tripods as a sort of boy's own story. A lot of people see it, would call it sci-fi, but I see it as an adventure story with some sci-fi. You know, these guys going on a journey, and it's, it's, a, it's as much about that as anything, really. Yeah. Uh, mm. And I, I've kind of never really dug any deeper into it than that. Um, how did you feel about the cancellation? How, how did you find out? Well, <laughs> how did I feel about the cancellation? <laughs> Well, like every, I think, um, to be honest, I think my disappointment was perhaps a little bigger. I literally walked away from the set while they continued to work. And so I really had that real time disappointment whilst everyone progressed on to series two and continued working and continued having that fun and that comradeship and that bond that they had all built up. They, although it went in a slightly different direction for them, for me, it came to a, a complete stop. Yeah. And I went off into the world and um, was told to not cut my hair. So that ended up long and curly and down past my shoulder blades before I knew it. I did some work with my stepfather and played with video cameras and one thing or another, believing all the time that Tripods 3 was going to start and I was going to go back and I was going to get that. Um, you were going to get the heroic death. Yeah, I was going to get the the hero's end and um, it didn't come. And I got the letter from Richard Bates with a big apology. And my word, yeah, that came like um, <laughs> it was very disappointing because I had tagged so much onto that. And interviews that I went for, I was saying, oh, no, I'm going to be Henry again. You know, I'm going to be Henry. And they were probably thinking, well, if he does become Henry again, we don't want the risk of um, some clash. Um but it didn't happen, and it was extremely disappointing. I wanted yeah. to play Henry, and I wanted Henry to have his moment, but also there was a potential for me and an acting career, and I wanted to do that as well, and that came to... Yeah. Yeah, Richard said to us that if he got the chance now to finish off the series, he'd have you come back as an older Henry telling the story in flashback. We said, oh, Henry oh, really? died. He goes, he goes, it's all right, I'll change it. I'll have Will blow himself up instead. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's that's nice. It would be. Uh, there's been some rumours about a, an audio version as well. Perhaps mm. uh, we would come back and read our parts because yeah, our, our voices it, haven't changed that much. 
Yeah, it, it makes sense for a big Finnish audio. I mean, that's the remit, but Disney's got the rights still. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Disney, who um, there's a clause in the Disney. I always remember, I always tell people about this. It's probably <laughs> boring the amount of people that have heard it. It's Disney have got this clause in their contract that you can't copy or distribute any of their material on any known format or even including a format that has yet to be brought to the planet Earth by aliens. I've, I've, I've read some like that. It must have been from you. <laughs> But, but yeah, future-proofing themselves. It's a bizarre level of protection that they have, um, stopping people from... And it, it works in fan art as well. There was, um, many years ago, there was a big argument about fan art and how that might upset Disney and we shouldn't do it and stuff mm. like that. But um, I think it's a bit freer now. People are able to produce fan art like this. I mean, no yeah. going to get upset mm. about that, really. It's yeah. just crazy. But, I, 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 I know we're on audio, but do you want to tell people about the painting? And, and, and maybe if you um, wouldn't mind, take a photo for us and, and send it later. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got some photos on the oh, computer already. already I can send you. So it's a picture of Henry holding up his suicide bomb sitting on the, the throne. Uh, the throne. It's not my kind of picture. <laughs> uh, sitting on his golden throne. Uh, he's sitting on the, the city, what do you call it, the roof. Oh. The dome of the city, waiting for it to explode. And it's him looking back at the the other guys in the balloon because the balloons dropped him off onto the the roof Mm. and the balloon's floating away and we're waiting for the bomb to go off. And that's the sort of the last look you get at Henry. That was very kindly given to me by the German fan group who are still alive and kicking. And there's a a busy forum in Germany and... uh, uh, yeah, they're very active and a great group. I've been over to Germany and visited them and they've come here and uh, I see them as friends now, you know, they're not just, you know, you build up relationships with people over time. And yeah, it's yeah. been it's been good fun. It's been a good journey. And I'm glad, I'm really glad to see John and Kerry um, come on board and, and start talking more. Kerry arrived at a fan group meeting as well a couple of years ago, which was really wonderful. Yeah, it's nice to get involved. You mentioned that you're working on something with Bob Blackton. Are you still working in television? Oh, yes. Oh, Bob's very busy. I mean, he's uh, set himself up now as a producer rather than a director. And um, I had developed a project with his father-in-law many years ago, and I blew the dust off it, showed it to Bob and said we ought to do something about it. And we, we had a nibble from Netflix, but then, as always happens on this occasion, the person who liked it left you know, and the person who came in didn't like it. So that kind of that. So we're, we're, we're talking to other companies at the moment to see if we can push that forward. Although, the, you know, there are all these new channels, it's not easy to get in there because, I mean, there's real money to be made out of Netflix. Mm. And so a lot of people are trying to, you know, to sell them stuff. It's not easy. Is it an adult or a children's? I'll tell you what it's about. Two young women, one happens to be white uh, and the other one's black, and they make wildlife films. Uh-huh. And you might think so, but if you think about where people go to make wildlife films, I mean, first of all, you're dealing with dangerous animals, often in very, very difficult terrain. You can be up a mountain, you know, down a mine, the bottom of the deep blue sea. I mean, it's all very challenging and demanding. 
and in countries sometimes, you know, where you're very welcome on Monday morning, but by Tuesday there's been a revolution and, you know, you're being held to ransom, you know, by somebody and you're in prison. I mean, all sorts of things can go wrong. What it inspired me, what it started me off was there was a woman who worked for Survival, if you remember the Survival Wildlife series that Anglia made many years ago. And she and her assistant, they went to an island called South Georgia, which is down near the Falklands, right at the bottom of the Atlantic. And they were making a film about penguins. This is 1982. So these two women are on this deserted, ice-covered island making their penguin film. And she describes how they're down on the beach one day. And she says, I felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And she said, I turned round and standing on the high ground behind us was a group of men, oh. not any ordinary men, but soldiers, Argentinian soldiers. <laughs> the first thing that the Argentinians did to test our resolve, they didn't immediately jump into the Falklands, obviously. Mm -hmm. They put some soldiers on South Georgia to see what we would do. So there are these two girls, they're 9,000 miles from home, with a group of men, you know, who are the enemy. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? I thought, that's a good situation. I mean, it, we've got some very good scripts, and I think it would make a very good series. Anyway, it may watch this space. It may come to something. <laughs> can, can you tell us the title of the series? Well, so at the moment, it's called Wild Eyes. Very good. You mentioned uh, when we spoke, Richard, that you'd written a novel and you were working on a second <laughs> one. Yeah. Tell us about your novel. Um, the first one is called Herod's Gold. The historical background is Herod built a temple in Jerusalem and the Romans plundered the temple in 57 AD and made off with all the gold artifacts. Took them to Rome and then a, a tribe called the Visigoths, they plundered Rome in about 400 and something, I think, and took the gold got as far as Carcassonne and other people were following them, wanting to get their hands on, on the, all these gold artifacts. And eventually the Visigoths got away from Carcassonne and disappeared into the Pyrenees, and the gold has never been heard of since. A lot of Raiders of the Lost Ark is just touching on the edge of that. And Hitler actually did send soldiers and spent quite a lot of money in the Second World War digging around the Pyrenees trying to find this gold. So I started thinking, well, where is it? Where, if they didn't, if it's not in the Pyrenees, what might they have done with it? And my theory is that they probably went into North Africa trying to find a safe place to keep it and ended up down near Timbuktu and probably hid it in a salt mine. And Al-Qaeda have found it. Oh. Oh. So we go on from there. So is this book available... Yes, it's available at a modest price on Amazon. It's called Herod's Gold. It, it's only 65,000 words. It's not a long book, but um, that was as much as I could muster. I'll tell yes. you what, one production story on a different program just to finish off with. I made a series for Rediffusion many, many, many years ago, 13-part drama. And, of course, I shot OB on location. So that was all fine. And we started transmission before we had actually finished production. So the studio dates were beginning to run up close to transmission dates. 
And part of episode 11 took place in the grounds of one of the Oxford colleges. And when we went on our first location visit to find one of the colleges, I realized that it would be quite impossible to get an outside broadcast unit and all the paraphernalia down all those narrow streets and alleyways and so on and so forth. So I very reluctantly made the decision that we wouldn't shoot that episode's location work on video, but we would have to do it on film. Mm -hmm. So we did that, did the studio work, the director went off, did the edit, finished the dub, went back into the studio area, and the PA had the master tape, there were no copies, went into the video department, and the guy was there, this was a Sunday evening, she said, where shall I put this tape? And he said, oh, just put it on that pile over there. So she did. Off she went. He was wiping tapes. <laughs> that was his job that evening. And he picked up this tape, put it on the machine, pressed the button. And then you, what do you have to do? You have to do it twice. You have to turn it over. Right. So he picks up the reel of tape, turns it over, and it says transmission copy. Oh, so he hadn't seen the label. Hadn't seen the label. Mm. It wiped the episode. Oh, no. This is Sunday night. The programme is due to go out a week on Monday. Wow. If you've ever seen anybody panic, we all panicked that week. But we were able to get the cast back into the studio. We built the sets and shot it in time to go out the following Monday. And if we hadn't shot the location on film... You wouldn't have had it. We wouldn't have had an episode. So film actually saved my bacon <laughs> on that occasion. That's incredible. Um, what series was it? It was a series for George Cole. It was called A Man of Our Times. It was about a guy, and he's made redundant. You know, His whole world turns upside yeah. down, and he doesn't know what to do about it. Anyway, that was a scary moment, I must say. I can imagine. So I don't know what we would have... We would just have had to... <laughs> Said, the test card. <laughs> We've just been the following Monday night. There would have been an announcement. The screen is now going to go blank for an hour. <laughs> we don't have a program to show. We didn't yet have the next program ready, so I couldn't have brought them forward. No, we missed a week's transmission. Trials and tribulations of being a producer. <laughs> that sounded very stressful um i can relate to that having recorded <laughs> things like interviews and focus groups for research and one or accident- episodes of this podcast <laughs> yeah once accidentally deleted an interview and i had to rewrite summaries of it from memory which was quite horrific since then has bec- i've become very paranoid yes. making sure things are recording and always have a backup <laughs> Yeah, and as you just pointed out, dear listeners, uh, episode two of this podcast, The City of Golden Lead, did get wiped, the original recording of it, so we had to re-record it a few weeks later. <laughs> wiped due to a very strange technical issue. One that, thankfully, we, we haven't encountered again. Um, yes. Interesting, I looked up that TV series, um, oh, yeah. A Man for Our Times. He said it was episode 11, it was called Never Mind How We Got Here. And according to IMDb's trivia... That is amongst the five episodes that are missing, believe, lost. <laughs> so after all that effort to remount oh it, it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anymore. So it's wow. been wiped more than once. The replacement copy no longer exists either. Oh, my God. 
you know, that was out of a 13 episode series. <gasps> it's such a shame. It would have been great to have seen that one or even just some of it now. Mm, yeah. But again, until 1977 or 78, TV was considered ephemeral and of no... Yeah, like a play. Uh, uh, and of, of no use to keep. Yeah, I'm in two minds about that because like, part of me just kind of likes the fact that it hasn't been kept. It's like, it's a passing moment in time. I like the, the, the poetry kind of aspect of it that... You know, you've seen it, but it's gone. It's like you go see a live event, like a comedian yeah. or something, and it's it's never going to be the same. Imagine if they'd kept wiping... Well, some stuff was wiped in the 80s, like Fraggle Rock, for example. Well, the British... Uh, the British ones, what was anyway. Was it the uh, bookend bits? Because it was... Uh... Oh, separate tapes. But then the master tapes were wiped too. And uh, the animated Sooty show, uh, the master tapes for that have been wiped. Really? mm well, it's like the original Quatermass experiment. A lot of that's gone, and I'd love to have seen the, that. The common consensus is it only telerecorded the first two episodes as a test. The other four were never recorded. But fortunately, we recorded Quatermass 2 and Quatermass in the Pit. So we have those oh, to yeah, enjoy. Yeah, because they're fantastic. I think the films are, are worth watching, even with Brian Don Levy as Quatermass. That's how I was introduced to Quatermass through those films. I've seen the first two films. I've seen none. <laughs> and that does not surprise me. Okay, so what are your final thoughts on the show being cancelled? Travesty. Was it all for nothing? Yeah, it um, annoys me. The BBC are a joke. At the end of the day, you had three series to make. You made two. Just make the third one. Like, you just look like idiots. You literally look like you don't know how to organise a piss up in a brewery. You can say, all right, it wasn't that great, but it was a three-series thing. It was always going to be a three-series thing. It was never going to be a 20-series thing. It was going to be a three-series thing done and dusted. You just look like absolute idiots. Like Robin Hayes has said, when he was at the memorabilia event, the majority of people said, oh, yeah, they never finished it. <laughs> you don't want to be remembered for that, but unfortunately, mm. that's how things turned out. No, and it's really sad that they didn't get to finish it. I think it's sad for the cast, the crew, and all the people who put work in it. Richard, looking... Richard. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I think it was an absolute shambles and how t- you found out. Well, yeah, it's finding out from, what was it, the... The, the guy sweeping the floor. Yeah, yeah. that's terrible. But that's, that kind of thing still happens now, because I heard that happen with uh, Dara Goes 8-Bit, where they found out, again, second-hand from other people, saying, oh, it's a shame about your show being cancelled. like, sorry, what? Yeah. I think that's terrible when that happens. And I have a feel that, you know, if they did do a third series, w- would the legacy be different now? Would it be remembered better? Because it would have been a, an encapsulated whole... It had a proper ending. Yeah, then, do you yeah. know what I mean? Having something unended, like the Tripods was, just, I don't know, it's not a whole product, No, no it, it's not. Maybe that could be part of the problem of, of selling it. If they wanted to sell it internationally, they'd, they'd have had an easy time of it with a finished product. Well, yeah, because they'd have gone, oh, yeah, we've got we've got a full product here, all three series, there you go. And it might have had, like I say, a bigger fandom and, yeah. and be, like I say, a, a, a bigger lasting legacy. And not remembered as, as a joke. Yeah, because that's, I think, what it, it has been remembered as, which is sad. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode of Tripods Cast. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and remember you can contact us with any comments and suggestions. You'll hear where you can do that at the end of the programme. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk about merchandise and other oddities relating to the tripods, including the comic books and a video game. So that's me, Rebecca Ray, Danny Ray, and John Isles saying goodbye. Bye! Bye! Thank you for listening to Tripodscast. 
If you'd like to contact or comment on the show, email us at tripodscast at gmail.com, Twitter at tripodscast, Facebook tripodscast, Instagram tripodscast, and Reddit r slash tripodscast. Special thanks go to Kerry Seal, John Shackley, Robin Hayter, Richard Bates, Will Hadcroft, Jim Baker, and Chris Jones. Recording in post-production by Kevin Highway. Uh, yeah, you can just wrap up this episode now. Come to your conclusions. Okay. I have no conclusions. Uh, other than we, we need the heads on spikes of Jonathan Powell and uh, Michael Grade. Michael Grade.